Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to the podcast. I know it's been long, but the wait is all worth it. This time on the podcast, we have Dinesh Pai. So, Dinesh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Yash. Uh, great to be here and thanks for having me. Awesome. So, like, this is a ritual I do on the podcast, okay? So, I never introduce guests because, obviously, the <laughs> guests introduce themselves. It's usually better, right? So, yes, who is right, Dinesh yeah. Pai? What's happening? Um, so, you know, in a nutshell, I'll no, probably not take a lot of time uh, with the mm-hmm. introduction. But um, so Dinesh works with Zeroda, um, part of the small team within Zeroda called Rain Matter. Um, at Rain Matter, what we do is we fund uh, startups um, in the capital market space, trying to deepen the capital market space in India. So anybody working with savings investments are of great interest to Rain Matter and Zeroda because we believe that um, for a country like India, it's important that we grow the investment base for people to have money in their hands and to prosper. Um, so essentially, that's the goal with Rain Matter, and um, that's what I do with Zeroda. And I also do a few operational things um, as part of the founders office at Zeroda as well. All right, awesome. So, like, before we get into the meat of the conversation, like, how did Zeroda happen? Like, you mentioned like how cold email got you in, and you know, a bunch of stuff. So, I want you to elaborate on that right. process. Like, how was that? How was So, um, as I was talking before, you know, I was in Canada uh, in 2020 when the lockdown happened. Um, I was very passionate about coming back to India and working for an Indian startup. Right? And uh, whenever you look for um, any Indian startup or you search for an Indian startup online, I think one of the names that always pops up is Zeroda. Um, but, you know, for me, I always knew about Zeroda and Nitin for quite some time. Um, I'd met Nitin in 2015 at one of the uh, small functions that he had attended in Mangalore, which is my hometown back then. Um, and since then, uh, you know, I've been trying to um, at least pursue an opportunity to work with Zeroda. 2010 happened and then um, I'd asked a friend of mine to kind of just uh, introduce me to the team at Zeroda. That happened. We had a few conversations. Um, and over a period of uh, three months after that, I think we had series of conversations about, uh, am I the right fit? Um, and then I think by November, we had finalized things and uh, I landed up here in January 2021. Uh, that's when I joined Zeroda. So, Cold email plus um, sequence of conversations and uh, maybe uh, the right aspiration to work for the right startup. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's been a dream come true so far. I think you know, Azeroda is is not just a startup and a company. I think uh, the number of smart people I get to work with every day, I think, is just amazing. So I get to learn every day, and and it's been everything I wanted to do right after my education in Canada. So it's it's been amazing so far. All right, how how did that cold email look like? Like, do you remember? Oh, so uh, it was just a friend of mine. So I knew a person called Sandeep Shanai. Um, he had written an email to Nathan saying, you know, oh, please take a look at this profile. Um, he's wanting to come back to India and, and want to work in India. Um, only if you see merit, you know, please do, uh, uh, do give him a shout. And um, eventually a call happened with Soom. I think Soom was supposed to be on this podcast with me, but I think uh, he had a few plans and wasn't able to make it. But uh, I spoke to Soom first and... Um, then right after I spoke to him. So, so um, it was a very simple email with just my resume. Um, and no, um, nothing more than that, nothing less than that. <laughs> All right. Let's go back to Canada. Okay. So how was that? Like, what was what were you studying then? How was the experience studying there? Right. So I did my MBA in Canada. Um, and, you know, I would probably give you cliched MBA answers as well. Uh, saying, you know, it was all about networking. It was all about... Um, skills and people and, and whatnot. But, you know, it was a great experience for me personally. Um, I think I went to a place which was, uh, you know, weather-wise also not suited for Indians. Minus 30, minus 25 down the year. Um, quite 
um, a change in terms of where I was geographically, also culture-wise, and great learning in terms of you know how Canadians function. Um, it gives me perspectives in terms of how different people kind of perceive work. Um, Canada functions very differently um, in terms of education and work. Um, with education, I didn't really uh, feel a lot of difference. That it was still the same, um, just that the delivery of of content in the classroom is a little different. But essentially, the quality I think is still the same because you know I always kept in touch with people in India who were doing their MBAs and ISPs and IAMs and whatnot. And uh, I think we ended up learning the same thing, um, just that I was in a different atmosphere where I had people from you know twenty, thirty different nationalities in my classroom, and I could interact with them, understand from them what's happening in their countries, and and look at certain examples. But apart from that, uh, you know that experience of being in a new place, um, independent. Um, away from friends and family, I think kind of makes you stronger because you know you gotta make it by yourself uh, for at least a certain period of time. So it was great. Um, I think at least for me, I think it was personal development. It was also education for me. So I wanted to learn more, um, have that master's degree. Um, just been an ambition since I was I think seventeen or eighteen. So um, I think it was dream come true to go to Canada as well to be admitted to a university. So I'm the first person in my family to actually go abroad. Uh, it also gave me perspective that you know maybe younger people in my family probably will um, see that you know that I've done it, so they can do it too. And uh, it's a good opportunity to go out and learn and get that exposure. Well, something that you you know took back from Canada, like some some like some learning. Like I know it's a cliche question, but like what are the differences right, that you right. see in between like the work culture? Let's say like how how different is working there and working here? Like I know so, you were studying, uh, there, so you picked up some jobs there. At yeah. Least. Yeah, no, no. I, I did work in Canada right after my MBA for about mm-hmm. a year and a half and two years. And I think one of the things that I've taken uh, away from Canada is that, um, you know, people kind of have those boundaries between work and personal life, right? And mm-hmm. they're quite um, strict with it. As in, people end up coming to the office at 6 a.m. and end up leaving office by 4 p.m. And after that, you know, nobody actually ends up working until 6 a.m. the next day. And I think... That works there because you know people are laid back in Canada a little bit. I think the the whole economy works like that, and the whole country works. Like that. And it was it was refreshing to see you know a different culture, right? Because in India, um, and I'm talking about you know these larger companies, people with larger workforce, IT, and and areas like that, where I think people spend a lot of time um, work, and there's not really work life balance. Luckily, you know at Zeroda, I think as you know, Nitin's been talking a lot about work life balance and. Mm. Uh, uh, we again put a culture which is very similar to Canada as well, where you know after six pm there's no work chats and stuff like that. So I'm lucky that you know I come back to India, but I'm still working in a company that's probably using the same culture that I saw there and was in awe of. Uh, but apart from that, I think you know just people, right? I mean, how helpful people were in Canada uh, to me, and um, where I am today wouldn't have been possible without people around me helping me there as well. So um, Canadians helped me out, uh, Indians helped me out. So it was nice to see that you know uh, that nationalistic boundaries doesn't really come across when you're in a different country. Uh, at least for me, I couldn't see. And uh, that kind of gave me a new perspective as well in terms of how I should probably give it back at some point in time too. So uh, those are two things that strike strike me when you ask me what, what did I take away from Canada. Interesting. All right. So it's like, I've been like, I've been in the Jordan Peterson phase, like probably like a year back. Uh, 
and he's been messing around with the canadian government for a long time so i actually have like a very genuine question is it so bad there or is it like just uh, you know, some some very like really smart person just nitpicking on you know what's going wrong in the government like, what's the case right right so you know if you if you ever travel to canada right i don't think you'll ever end up meeting people who will talk politics with you i think okay. you know this this whole buzz around jordan peterson i think is more around social media right? because he's on social mm. media he's got so many followers there's there's so much content out there i think we end up coming across it but i think if you're in canada if you're working in a place you're studying with somebody um, at a university i don't think you'll ever end up discussing politics for more than say 1 to 2% of your entire time there and i think that's because people kind of prioritize a lot of other things in life uh, politics for them is a once in a four year three year kind of event where mm. you know, they kind of have healthy debates and and i'm not sure if you know about this but you know canadians are very friendly people and uh, and i know you know people the people from the states kind of you know don't like it uh, or at least have satires around you know how friendly canadians are but they're actually genuinely nice people and they're nice to everybody not just canadians and um, even political debates there if you look at um, parliament of canada uh, they're so civil and and they're very very eloquent right i mean you can listen to what uh, everybody's saying and i think that kind of translates to the entire community and and the diaspora there as well so jordan peterson saying something i think somebody is disagreeing with him i think uh, both voices will be heard um, and i think that's something that's very nice but again you know situation when i left canada in 2020 was very different to what it is today um, hmm. i think some of the news and some of the things coming out of um, canada right now i'm not sure what to make of yeah. it i'm not really an expert at that as well so um, but again dude i mean this is a problem i think with every country for not sure, just canada sure. but but uh, yeah i think it's not as bad as as how we perceive it to be always anyway <laughs> mm-hmm. that's great All right like the next question is like it's almost like a cliche thing that's happening around at least in the social media space right now right so people are constantly shitting on the idea of going out and studying right. and wasting i mean not even wasting like using up so much capital or having like student loan on your back before you start the right. career what do you think about that do you think like do you think studying abroad is worth it Mm, you know that's a tricky question right again it depends um and the context and um everything to do with that person who's who's wanting to go abroad right so um i've seen you know friends and and people in my network who've gone out and studied because somebody else has told them that it's best for them um they've never done research they've never looked at universities they've never looked at professors they'd like to probably talk to interact with they've never looked at subjects that they probably want to learn as well uh but just because somebody else has done it uh, they'd like to go I think that's the wrong approach. I think you know it's it can be good and bad, but I think the right way to approach higher education is to know what you are getting into. I think you have to make peace with uh, a lot of things. I think you'll be staying away from family, away from your country, um, away from your friends. Probably not meet um, a lot of um, your close friends and meet a lot of uh, or miss a lot of events uh, in the process. But I think if you are if you've made up your mind in terms of what to study and what you have to pursue, then I think. um uh, that's a good decision making uh, step but is it good or bad is it right or wrong i don't think that's the right way to ask that question i think the the question should be should people what should people be doing before they go outside and study that and they should speaking to alumni of that university speaking to professors there speaking to admission council there speaking to a lot of people trying to make sure that they have got every bit of information they possibly can get even before making that decision um and if that fits into your longer term plans what do you want to do in life um i think then it's great you know for me it 
it i wanted to do mba because i i'm an engineer i'm a computer science engineer and i wanted to get into finance it's something that was very exciting for me and capital markets was something that i was very crazy about uh being in canada i i could never trade in indian markets because uh you no know, education always working so i never took out time but um i think you know mba kind of gave me that exposure to finance and uh, gave me this opportunity so um but yeah i think you know it depends on person to person if if you're ready to make some sacrifices and and know what you want to get in life i think higher education can be great and um, i mean there are examples out there right and my friends who are working in the states i think they're all doing really well i think all of them made that conscious decision of chasing something in life and i think they've done well so if people want to go outside i think they should uh, follow that decision making process interesting what jobs did you pick up while you were in canada uh, so when i was studying a lot of jobs um i think a lot of part time jobs um a lot of jobs on the campus as well because i think i ended up meeting a lot of professors so i ended up uh, um getting these teaching assistant kind of roles uh, which kind of paid the bills and uh, also did a few jobs outside too um but right after i joined uh, en wine canada so i think once i got a full time job i didn't never really uh, got any part time jobs but i think you know all jobs are very treated very fairly i don't think people never really look down upon any kind of job to do so that is kind of also very nice and uh, maybe i should have mentioned that when i uh, when you asked me what i took away from canada i think one of the differences between india and, and canada is also that right i think india people doing uh, no jobs which are not in software not in it not fancy i think gets looked down doesn't really happen in, in canada so did a bunch of jobs but mainly on campus um did some research jobs did some teaching assistant jobs quite fun um mm-hmm. invigilating exams and stuff like that but uh, you know nothing nothing out of the ordinary <laughs> interesting how how are four years of engineering um you know uh, brings back a lot of memories mm-hmm. i was just talking to a friend the other day about um how quickly it's gone right i mean it's 2022 now and can't believe uh, engineering was about 8 uh, years ago or at least 2014 was 8 years ago um you know i made a lot of friends and i'm from southern india by the way so i had zero north indian friends and um my first year in engineering i i was in a hostel room with uh, a friend from rajasthan and a friend from mumbai and got to learn so much about how they look at life right and i never looked back from there i think they were my best friends i met so many other people who in the classroom from different states and i think engineering was all about meeting people from different states from so um luckily that happened in bangalore i didn't have to travel anywhere else um and you know i enjoyed a lot of it i, I come from a very small uh, village in urpi and for me to go to bangalore to do engineering was all fancy and uh, yeah, it was pretty cool because i i enjoyed all of it i wanted to learn uh spent a lot of time studying and um also worked very hard uh, and had fun um, on the side and met good people and i think that's all i could have asked for at that point in time but yeah it was pretty cool <laughs> interesting all right man like this 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 question like this comes from uh, see i'm not sure if you know about varun maya do you i i've i've spoken to varun maya only recently uh, i think they're running the avalon scenes right basically yeah yeah so got him on the yeah. podcast like a year back or so so Okay. what he mentioned like like recently mentioned like in another another podcast he did that south indians are usually like kind of underconfident like that's what he said because right. he is a south indian right? like and when they interact <laughs> okay. with north indians it's 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 not easy like is that is that is that what happened with your case when you interacted with north mm. indians and like the cross culture thing happened and you know i don't i don't you, think so i mean if if for anything i think you know 
South Indian, I don't see any difference as such, right? I mean, yeah. uh, at least from my personal opinion, from my perspective, um, from or at least with my cohort in engineering, I think mm. all of us kind of mingled. I don't think there was ever that friction. I and I haven't really noticed anything like that. But um, sure, you know, if there's if there's an unpopular opinion out there, I think that is that you know uh, probably South Indians and North Indian students in a university probably don't mix up. And I don't I don't think I agree with that because you know some of the best people I met were from both uh, uh, sides of the story and. At least some of the people who took care of me were uh, also North Indians and South Indians. So I would say I don't probably uh, relate to that. But um, what I can say is I think uh, doesn't really matter. Right? At the end of the day, I think once you know somebody, uh, once you have that person connect, it doesn't really matter where they are from. And at least that's what I figured out that uh, initially when we get into this this whole college and and. Um, new ecosystem, new environment. I think everybody gets a little defensive, and I think that's the reason for that perspective. But I think once uh, six months, seven months down the line, I think everybody starts talking to everybody. I don't think that's a problem at all. So I haven't seen that problem first. Interesting. All right, let's, let's get back to zero. Okay. So yeah. uh, this is like a ritual I do on the podcast. This is the second ritual. So the first the ritual is like I asked the, ask the person on the podcast like what like how. Would you explain the zero the business model to an eight-year-old? Let's say an eight-year-old just comes up to you and asks, "Hey, Dinesh, what do you do?" So, what what would you say? Right, <laughs> right. So, simplification simplification is probably not my strong suit, but I'll give this a shot. So, um, you know, there are companies out there who are operating. Um, eventually, these companies to operate, they need money. Um, they raise money through various ways. They have investors. Um, eventually, they try to get money from the public as well by going public. Now, what do you mean by going public? Is that they hand people ownership of the companies in return for, uh, say, shares of the companies. Um, that's what people buy in equities. Now, that's basically the equity delivery trade, is what we call it, Zeroda. Um, for our business model, as such, uh, we don't charge anything for equity delivery, so we keep that relatively simple. Now, what happened over a period of time is that there were people who wanted to. Uh, you know, speculate on some of these stocks and speculate on some of the indices. Now, an index or an index is basically a um, set of stocks that is uh, weighted by the market caps, and um, it's part of the, uh, or at least it, it index shows what's happening with underlying stocks of companies. Now, people who wanted to speculate um, wanted to have some amount of uh, fanciness to investment. Uh, they came up with a concept of leverage, basically. Um, Upfront, reducing the upfront money to making sure that you got uh, you get bigger exposure in terms of the investment that you can profit from. Uh, so essentially, that's the business model of Zeroda is that uh, we let people do equity trades and uh, say futures and options or derivatives. Uh, again, apart from currency, commodities, and stuff like that. Um, but that, that's essentially what our business is now. The business model is more around transparency, right? I think before Zeroda, um, there were stockbrokers, of course. Now, why is Zeroda successful? I think that's because of how transparent we are with charging, how transparent we are with pricing, um, how our, our charges are also twenty rupees per trade. Uh, when I say trade, uh, I mean derivatives. So um, basically, ninety percent of the exchange turnover is derivatives. Nine percent is intraday stocks that people buy and sell. Um, and one percent is equity delivery. So whenever you buy a share for into a DMAT account and that you want to sell maybe three four days later, 
um, that's a very tiny fraction of, of what happens on the exchange. So all the derivatives and all the speculation is is what we earn money from. Um, and the business model is just doing well for the customer, right? And helping them manage money better. Um, I think I would say that is the business model. Is that for all of us um, at Siroda when we're working, I think there's only one thing that we look for is to help our customers do better. Um, that's because um, it's it's not all always about revenue, right? For us, at least, uh, we look at how can we stop people from trading in penny stocks. We can we look at how can we stop people from trading altogether if they are losing. So we've got nudges, we've got kill switch, we've got so many other features. Uh, we've got trading journal as well that people can learn from their mistakes. So everything we've done with our application, everything we've done with uh, our products, I think it is about helping the customers and deepening the capital market space in India. Um, and I think I would say that. Um, would be the business model of Zerota is that we're trying to help people manage money. Interesting. All right. So I'll be honest. I didn't understand like a few parts of it. Uh, okay. Like... So, as, as I said, you know, like, yeah. I mean, uh, to, to put it in a few sentences, I think it's, it's quite difficult for me. Uh, again, simplification is not my strong suit. Sorry. <laughs> sure. That's all right. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's jump back to like the work culture in Zerota, right? So, you know, how's it working right. in Zerota? Like what, what, what's different? So, Right off the bat, it's a very flat organization. Um, there are no hierarchies. There's, it's absolutely wonderful to work with smart people. I think um, I learn something new every day. And you know, as cliche as it might sound, I think you know, there's a saying which says, um, "If you're the smartest person in the room, probably in the wrong room." And uh, I certainly don't feel I'm in the wrong room because there's always somebody who's smarter than me in the room. So um, I think the work culture is just that, right? I mean, uh, people are very nice to each other, very kind. Um, and I think there's always something new to learn. Um, but apart from that, I think it's a very open organization. Um, we respect people. We try to give people that space, um, that work-life balance, um, and everything that they desire, basically. So, um, and, you know, Nitin's kind of been very generous with ESOPs and stuff like that. So it's not always about soft skills. I think, you know, monetary-wise as well, I think people have done really well. Uh, that's because um, of, of the ideology of the theaters uh, within the company is to help employees also to grow and develop uh, over a period of time. So it's not always about, um, you know, what's the productivity and stuff like that. It's also about personal growth, uh, how you're taking care of your health. I think a lot of health initiatives do. Um, at least I, in my experience, having worked at three different or four different companies, haven't seen the kind of extensive steps and, and projects we take up to just take care of our employees, right? So uh, just super nice. And I think that's different as compared to any other company. So um, at least those are some of the things that come to mind. Interesting. I had a couple of questions about uh, the company having like a flat hierarchy structure, like no hierarchy right. at all. How does that right. How does that work, right? So because most of the people I've talked to have been in startups, they have sort of emphasized on the fact that there should be some sort of a hierarchy, some sort of a leader. And I think right. even I heard heard that on Peterson as well a couple of months ago. Right. Uh, right. How well has that worked for you guys, like having a flat structure? Right. You know, I, I think that that whole concept of having a leader, I think that really applies to right? I mean, we've got leaders too. I mean, uh, there's Nitin, there's Kailash, who's our CTO, there's Venu, who's our CEO, uh, there's Hanan, who's our head of customer support. And I think, you know, all of these people kind of give us direction. So... When I say flat hierarchy, I think what I mean to say is I think within our peers, I think there's not really any kind of separation in terms of designation. I think, you know, we all have different designations, but I don't think anybody has ever looked at their designation. So that's because we all collaboratively work. I think we listen to each other and um, we kind of accept ideas from each other. Uh, there's nobody who says, you know, they know everything. 
I think that's one of the differences. Um, but as you said, I think one of the points that you just mentioned is that there needs to be some amount of direction, right? And I think we do have that direction. The direction, as I said, is to help people manage money better and and do everything possible to help the clients. And for us, I think that itself is the underlying vision of the company is to um, help people in whatever way possible. Uh, at least all of our clients. And um, that's what we try to do day in and day out with anything we do. Um, and anytime we try to take up a new project, we try to answer the questions, how does this help our clients? And um, I'm sure, you know, if there are no reasons why it wouldn't help our clients, um, we don't really give it priority. But um, again, not saying there are not situations where we need a leader to make a decision because there's always times when a decision needs to be made. But those times are, are very far and few. Um, but essentially, there are a few leaders who set a vision. And what it also does, it frees up space for everybody else to work. Right? I think uh, people work differently. And to get all of them to work in the same structure that corporates work, I think it doesn't really work out. Um, as we scale, as we grow, um, I think you know it, it might change. But uh, for now, or at least companies might change as they grow, or startups might change. But for us, it's worked really well. And I think um, we are 1,100 people. It's a fairly large company. I've seen companies with 500 people having hierarchies, right? So we're 1100 people. So it's worked for us. And I'm sure it's going to work in the future because we've got an underlying vision. Uh, we know exactly what the leaders expect. We know exactly what our clients expect of us. And I think that is the utmost priority. And I think that kind of helps set um, the vision or the direction for everything we do. What do you think like makes for a good leader in the corporate space? Uh, empathy. I think, you know, <laughs> after Having spent a lot of time before Zerodha in, in corporates, I think that is very important. Uh, not not saying other things are, are uh, say, less important, but I think empathy in, in this current environment is very important. When I say empathy, I mean to say um, being fair with people, right? I mean, understanding the situation, understanding the context. I think this emotional intelligence is, is uh, quite easy uh, to narrate and to talk about, but I think in practice it's quite difficult, and it takes a lot of work because everybody is human, right? I mean, everybody can get angry, everybody can can get a little flustered, um, and I think a manager needs to know how to be calm, how to motivate their employees, and I think um, that will only come from empathy. And uh, I, I've seen that in in Zeroda, I think you know uh, all of our leaders are, are quite amazing how they handle people problems and um, none of them have any kind of corporate experience right and i think they do it well because you know they they do it genuinely and i think that forced um, taking care of employees doesn't really work out well um, as a manager i think you really need to dedicate time and effort and, and give energy to what you're doing and help people develop um, if you're not if or say if your reports are not growing if the reports don't feel that they're learning something new i don't think uh, they'll be they'll be following you for quite some time. So um, I would say empathy and, and just being very considerate about the situation, I think is very important. Uh, technical skills and, and stuff like that, I think will always be there. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think those interpersonal and emotional intelligence kind of goes a long way. Interesting. Like, what's like the trickiest situation that you have uh, handled in like, let's say zero, like can you narrate an instance? Um, can you can you repeat that question? Sorry. What's the trickiest situation that you handle like, uh-huh. in terms of like with people like with, with like sort of leading people ah uh-huh. interesting um you know can we can we come back to this later i can't think of any as of now but you know to be honest this there's not been any. i, I don't Asha. think there's ever a situation where um, where i felt it's been tricky right i think you know this is what i was getting at earlier is that i think 
we, as an organization, we're very upfront. As in, there's only honest conversations going on. There's never really that, uh, you know, corporate culture where people are hiding things and stuff like that. I think uh, we're all very fearless in terms of what we can say to each other. And often we, we do say things if at all there's an issue. But uh, there's never been any tricky situations, at least for me. And I haven't seen anything. I haven't heard from anybody as well. So, um, but, you know, there's been... tons outside in my friend circles that I've heard of but uh, none that that comes to mind when I think of zero so like what what do you keep in mind to like even to avoid those situations like how 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 is like the track record so clean like there, there has to be mm. something that you always keep in mind right while probably talking like, to juniors or like like whatever like something uh, like that correct I, i think it's it's again driven from the leadership right i think um, you know what happens is that see people i report to kind of speak to me however or whichever way i think i would speak to people um, in the same way right because i think mm. that's what i learn and i think that is kind of driven into us at zeromex that um, you know you always have to be considerate of somebody else and you know work is is fine and cool and, and all that but i think uh, for me at least personally i i look at everybody as an equal right i mean at zeroda at least everybody Uh, we're a flat organization, as I said. I think everybody's ideas are respected and and taken and and it's actually implemented. And um, in fact, there have been a lot of ideas from from a lot of people who uh, probably aren't working directly with it. Right? And I think that happens because as a as an organization, we truly believe that we're a flat organization. And it wouldn't have happened anywhere else because there's so many levels of people you'll have to go through for an idea to come up and bubble up to it. Right? I think internally we have a forum where people can express ideas any point in time and. that kind of gives an option for everybody to to probably express themselves and what that does is um you know everybody is obviously honest with each other i think nobody is hiding any any kind of information because there's no incentive to do that and i think that kind of helps and what do i keep in mind um when i interact with people is to just be respectful right i think that kind of ends the story right? it's a full stop for me i think if you're respectful with somebody you're talking in a certain way and i don't think anything you say can can make it worse right i think um, i think that respect between you and somebody else should be there even if somebody is not part of it i think that's a general life perspective of it so uh, so yeah i think you know just being respectful is kind of quite important and everybody is right i think mm-hmm. um, with me it's not just me i think everybody around me is is quite respectful with what they do and with how they interact with people so it becomes easier because it's not just you who is who's trying to do things i think you see other people putting in effort too so i think it's quite nice that way and uh, that's the only reason why you know we've been or at least we've done what we've done so interesting like what's like what's like the proper way to sort of reject an idea let's say some let's say a colleague of yours or probably like a junior of yours right. just comes in and gives right. you an idea and you're the one to take charge of it like right. what's the proper way to reject so you know for me at least personally um, i would look at all the data that's available right when i say data i mean to say what is the idea that's that's come what is the impact of it um, how many people will it benefit and i think just based on that we it's never going to be me rejecting that idea right i think it'll just be a conversation between me and that person where you know we'll sit down and we'll look at things about what's this going to do what's the good and the bad um how long will this take to build and uh, is this actually worth working on and are there other things that we'd rather spend our time on and if we both agree on something i think we end up not doing that um but if we both disagree then you know we bring in a, um, another person we kind of show it we talk to other people crowdsource um and then try to reach a decision but it's never just one person trying to say it's always collaborative it's always 
consensus, right? And when I say consensus, I don't mean agreement. I mean, I can bring an idea to somebody who can say no, but I can disagree with that decision, but I should be on board with that no, right? So I think that's driven into us is that um, no doesn't mean that uh, the idea was bad. It's just just means that, you know, at this point in time, it's probably not worth it working on this because we'd rather spend time on something else. So I think that would be a better conversation and, and shelve the idea rather than reject it. Um, I think that's also something that we do. But uh, but essentially, I mean, again, this is not really a problem within Zeroda because, as I said, we are very objective with people. And there's never really any kind of hierarchy in there that kind of uh, puts barriers in between communication between people and leaders or making decisions. So um, that kind of helps because you can take your idea to Nathan directly as well. So uh, somebody bringing an idea to me, bringing an idea to Nathan, I think it's the same process. I think we all discuss it. We all see what's the merit and the cons. And I think that itself will give us the decision. So it's never somebody else just sitting and, and making the decision. That's interesting. Like, have you ever, like, like, do you actively sit in, uh, like, sitting hire, sit in hiring interviews? Like, is that, um, have you done that ever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done a few interviews. Again, since, he, since we're a very small team, I don't think we actively hire people. Right. Okay. I mean, um, we've been trying to hire a few business analysts for uh, some time now, and we recently concluded um, our hiring process as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, we do a few interviews, but that again, it's mm-hmm. so. Yeah, look, what did that never, teach you? Yeah. Like, what did that teach you? Like, hiring people. Like, what's the like? What's your? Do we have like a checklist? If these these boxes check, then we'll get this guy in. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> not not really. I think, uh, you know, for me, at least personally, I, I'd like to know what the person is like. I mean, um, just the just the thought process, just the, uh, the culture and the fit to Zerita. I think we as a company, we're very open-minded, we're very collaborative, we're very, and everybody's expected to communicate well with each other. And I think that's, those are some of the boxes that we'd like to see in somebody. I think when somebody comes to us, I think, or is in an interview, uh, we'd like to see that personal side of that person. Uh, technical side of it, obviously, yes, you know, since we're in capital markets, we look at some of those other things, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but just the boxes in terms of personal skills, I think uh, just a regular, uh, genuine person who, who's ready to you know, work on things, ready to uh, probably collaborate and communicate well, and um, is excited to be to be a part of Zeroda, right? I think that's really important too. And um, one of the reasons why or at least I feel somebody uh, would not be a good fit is if you're chasing other objectives. Right? I think people who come to Zeroda to work for Zeroda and the idea behind helping people, uh, I think that's obviously a great fit. Apart from that, I don't think there's a lot of checklists out there. Uh, you just look at how good people are and, and how genuine they are and what they want to do in life. And that kind of uh, is our direction and the not staff. Like what are the problems that you guys are facing uh, while hiring people? Like you recently hired a couple, right? So, uh, so from right. what I've talked to a couple of guys in Bangalore who own startups, they said that they are they are seeing too many job hop- hoppers. Like at least in Bangalore, mm-hmm. like too many of them right. changing right. jobs every right. three months, four months. So is that the same right. with zero? Though? Like what was the case? No, not not really. I think you know this this whole job hopping kind of uh, uh, trend, right? I think it's mostly in tech and within Zeroda, I think a technology team is 30, 31 people. And okay. uh, Kailash, our CTO, is very particular about, you know, how to hire and how many people to hire. And I think Nitin's kind of spoken about this at length as well in various webinars and podcasts. And I think that's why uh, that whole job 
hopping is kind of not an issue for us and um it's true in bangalore you know like i mean people do have multiple offers and i think that kind of happens but we've not really seen that at zeroda and um for the hiring part as well i mean uh, there, there are always issues here and there but uh, nothing really that that we can highlight except i think it's just common problems of finding the right talent it just takes time sometimes and um that's the only thing that probably comes to mind interesting all right let's come back to stock markets okay so like just a disclaimer yeah. i'm like i'm like a complete noob about stock markets i don't know most of the fundamentals but right. what i've seen there right now it's it's booming a lot at least in the social media space and probably like pre- people who are like 3 4 years elder to me they're getting into right. it like quickly right. so right. Uh, i have a couple of questions on that so first question is like what makes the idea of the stock market so attractive to first jobbers or like second jobbers mm i think it's just their friends hyping it up right i think um there's there's nothing out there that makes it really attractive i think it's just these social media posts it's just the buzz around the whole wealth generation or how quickly you can generate wealth i think that kind of uh, lures people in uh, but apart from that i don't see uh, why it should be very attractive right? i mean we've recently released a post with which talks about how only a tiny fraction of people who are investing in the markets actually or trading the markets actually make money and this gets missed in all the noise because of all the content out there all the successful people we hear from now people who we don't hear from on social media are all the people who lost money money uh, in the stock markets i think that's one of the reason why it becomes very attractive for first jobbers and second jobbers um, but i can't think of any other reason at this point in time interesting like to what degree do you think like the success in stock market is like overrated let's say on social media or like whatever like traditional media uh, like we always hear about no. people like what are the stories about people yeah. like making like insane amount of money just like putting in like, small amounts like what, what do you think about Correct. Like, Correct. how overrated is that uh, you know i think there's a lot of effort that goes behind it and i think there's a lot of um say learning that goes behind it uh, overrated i wouldn't say so uh, what i would say is i think um there's a lot of factors at play think you got to know what you're trying to do and also have a lot of risk management um, things in your mind i think you got to learn all these things over a period of time to actually have that um, say outcome right because i think what we do see on social media with stock markets is that somebody saying you know they put 20 lakhs and they've gotten 3 crores um, at the end of it now that journey from 20 lakhs to 3 crores i think would have been different for different people and i think to know that and to understand that is quite important um but apart from that i think um you know success in stock markets is is valid i think you know a lot of people have done well but there are several more people i mean multiples of the people who've done well who have not done well in stock markets who we don't hear from because obviously you know negative stories never really come up so um i i would say you know it's a it's a lot of learning it's a lot of effort um, and if somebody is willing to do and and go that far i think you know it's absolutely not bad um but again i think it's a very risky space to be in i think we uh, kind of alluded to it multiple times and kind of keep talking about it is that um a very tiny fraction of people who are trading or investing in the markets kind of make money and um it's it's just historical trends right so uh, for us i think that's very important that we communicate to people that you know there is risks in the market here and um, i think that is also out there now but over the past couple of years i think it's just become a buzzword because of how much money has been floating around and how much people have been investing um since uh, there's a lot of money in the market the number of goods or the the stocks that you can purchase remain same i think you know asset prices have inflated uh, quite some quite a while so mm-hmm. 
uh, I think that's been one of the reasons why there's been a lot of talk around it. But apart from that, it's a very risky space to be. Sure. Like, like how, like how big of an impact has internet had had on like the stock market space? Like, let's say earlier, a couple of years ago, where internet wasn't such a big thing, at least in India. Right. How right. like what what are the differences? How how differently did people trade? Like like were the like the, do the decisions of people change because of the internet? Um, I I wouldn't say decisions of people have changed, but I think people have become self sufficient, right? So, um, one of the reasons why Zeroda has you know grown from say one two million customers to about eight million today is also because of Aadhaar. Now, Aadhaar is just an online identification, and that has kind of helped us onboard people without paperwork. um and internet kind of has enabled that indirectly um i think that's been one of the one of the important points um it's it's not about decision making it's all the finer um friction points right that that internet has disabled now or at least removed uh, payments for example uh, identification paperwork signatures uh, what not you name some of these smaller friction points if they are removed by the internet i think kind of helps the business and the function that is uh, enabling a lot of things for people uh in the capital market space yeah you know i've i've seen a lot of people in my family kind of uh trade before uh, without discount brokers without applications without uh, web interfaces etc is that you know they'll call their brokers and and probably place trades etc now it's very different because you get access to uh, a lot of things at the tip of your or at, at least at your fingertips and that kind of helps uh, a lot because you're in control of the decisions you can take and not really reliant upon somebody else picking up the phone and exiting your trade or entering your trade or what not so um that kind of helps um but i think the idea behind internet enabling stock markets should be looked at from a perspective of removing smaller friction points like onboarding payments um uh, demand and what not so i think those smaller problems once were removed i think has helped uh, the indian capital market space grow um uh, it's never really been about that uh, the other larger factor that it's always been smaller things interesting so like why was there like an influx of people investing in the influx of like retail investors after the lockdown or let's say during the lockdown Right, right. So you know, I've I've met a lot of people uh, in the past year um, who who said, you know, I started investing last year. And my next question is always to them, you know, why? Why did you uh, invest? And the answer has always been, you know, I was doing nothing. I was at home. I had time. So everybody was talking about the stock markets, and I kind of invested. And I think that is the answer. Hopefully, and I'll keep talking to people, and I'll probably let you know if if the answer changes. But at this point in time, the answer is. that you know people really found it interesting to to learn something new to to invest uh, everybody else around them was doing and it just got um it just became a trend right i think three of your friends started doing it um uh, people looked at them and said you know why shouldn't we do it and they did it and people at home uh, they did it and i think it just became uh, one of those network effect thing um, again no real right answers yet uh, it's just people having a lot of time at their hands who uh ended up looking at different things and uh, naturally they would pivot towards somewhere where there is monetary gain out of it uh, and that's the stock market so i think that's why people kind of invested over the last couple of years so like how does that change the industry right so i think this was the first time where like a like a typical uh trend type situation happened where people started entering the stock market space because probably the entry barrier is easier you no know, because of the internet as you said like how does that change right. the industry mm, you know that's an interesting question so Uh, I haven't personally really looked at uh, the kind of influx of of uh, say 
clients in the Indian capital market space. I think one of the things that I kind of closely tracked was the 2008 crash. That's only after I got a job in 2014, which was which was in the financial services space is when I tried to look at it. And, you know, there was an exodus of, of clients then, right? And 2008 crash kind of impacted India. A lot of people stopped trading. And for the numbers to go up to the level of, uh, say, 2007 or 2008 mid just before the crash, it took another you know decade to reach that number. And that kind of talks about how volatile this market is. Right? I think people do come in quickly. Now, if there's a drawdown or if there's a bear market that you know kind of pushes the stock market down, um, then I think people will leave as quickly as well. So mm-hmm. in terms of what changed the industry, I think we'll only see over a period of time. I think we'll need at least a couple of uh, sorry, years more uh, to see how this has actually impacted the industry. But at this point in time, I think, you know, it's great that people have entered the stock markets. They have DMAT accounts. They're trying to invest in mutual funds and they're trying to at least look at some of the things that they can invest in. And I think this education can go a long way because um, the inflation, um, a lot of other things, I think money in the bank uh, is losing its value over a period of time. Not saying somebody should come and trade and invest uh, if they have money in the banks. But I'm saying people who are looking at stock markets, I'm sure they're probably learning as well, which is probably a good thing because um, that kind of helps grow the market over a period of time. But um, the number is not the only thing to look at. I think the influx is true, but I think if the market becomes volatile, um, these people will leave as quickly as well. Uh, I think the number of serious traders in, in the market have, has only probably gone up a tiny fraction. Um, but I think the retail traders who have entered um, only after 2020 uh, is a large portion of that new addition uh, to the markets, uh, which again, we'll see how it plays out over the next uh, four to five years. Interesting, right? So like, what is that one thing that drives the stock market for the most part? Like on what basis does an average Indian make a buy or sell decision? Let's talk about like the time period of, let's say the past four years. Okay, like, are there like WhatsApp groups? Like, do do like social media gurus sort of? uh, Yeah, yeah. uh, no, I'm sure, I'm sure there are, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure there are like a lot of communities, but I think the answer to what you asked me uh, is just one word, right? I think that's just um, greed and and wanting to make money out of the stocks and investments. I think that kind of drives all the decision making itself. And um, there's always fear and greed in the markets. And I think you know Ray Dalio kind of puts it very nice that um, a bull market, bear market is just switching between greed and fear, right? So I think it's just those two concepts and humans. Uh, with our behavior, I think we're very basic. Uh, as much as we'd like to think that, you know, we're very complex animals, I think we're very basic in terms of how we think. And I think fear and greed is all there is. And every time you try to invest in something, it's it's you're hoping to make money out of it, which is greed. <laughs> and uh, if you're trying to exit something, I think, you know, that's because you're fearing that you'll probably lose money. And that's all there is to it. And I think there are a lot of communities, a lot of, uh, say, uh, WhatsApp groups, etc., that you just mentioned that are built around it. Uh, I haven't personally looked at a lot of it, um, but I'm sure there are a lot of them. And uh, I'm not sure what happens out there, but maybe I should definitely do check out. But uh, but yeah, I think that's my answer. Is that I think Nitin also kind of has spoken about it. Uh, it's just fear and greed. Right. So like, I think uh, Nitin tweeted about how influencers on Twitter are like just uh, not. I think tweeted about Elon Musk. If I'm not wrong, I, I might be wrong. I'm, I'm not sure. About how okay. hyping up, let's say, any any like very volatile asset is 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 right. wrong. Uh, what do you yeah, think about yeah. that? So, like at least on Twitter, you know, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if if Nitin's tweeted that, but um, so so I'll go back and and check anyway. But um, the thing is, I think 
what's happened over a period of time over the last year is that you know with these cryptocurrencies and nfts and and stuff like that i think it's it's okay as long as an asset is holding its value right so what happens is that somebody is trying to push people to purchase an asset and that asset eventually becomes worthless um the people who end up uh, holding the bag uh full of you know worthless stuff is just the retail traders right? because they've gotten in at the wrong time and they've gotten influenced by people um because they have no idea what's happening and they've just gone by a tweet or a linkedin post or or a message that they've gotten or a friend who's tipped them and whatever it is i think eventually the idea is to make sure that people who are probably not having access to information are not affected and in this case with twitter with social media i think it's very easy to manipulate people uh, that's what's happened over a period of time last year uh, we've seen a lot of those cryptocurrencies kind of pump up in value and then eventually over the next couple of hours goes to zero a lot of people have lost out money like that so i think that's that's quite wrong i think because people who lose out money are, are probably not wealthy right i mean they're probably they're making mistakes that are sometimes very bad for their financial uh, health etc so uh, it is kind of wrong uh, what's happening in the cryptocurrency space with that pump and dump kind of scheme but uh, yeah nothing more to add to that apart from the fact that you know for us at least with with indian regulatory space it's very hard to do things like this i think there's a lot of regulations and uh, there's a lot of say oversight from sebi uh, etc and i think that kind of helps um, protect the retail investors in india uh, which is the difference between india and the us right because the us is quite liberal in terms of capital markets mm-hmm. and um, the lot of things which are very gray kind of happens very openly in the us and in india it's it's still um, a very investor friendly market because there's still regulators trying to uh, take care of you um, but yeah i think that's that's my answer to that question interesting like uh, what is like the right way to look at uh, losing money in in the markets let's say i lose like x amount of money tomorrow what is the right way to look at it so i would say at least from my okay so this is my personal opinion and at least how i look at things is that mm-hmm. um if you are looking to take risks in the markets i think it should be a fraction of your net worth right so whatever or at least the money that you're willing to lose and one of the thing that nitin kind of always tells on webinars on podcast internally as well is to always make peace with the worst outcome right so if you're investing in the markets if you're taking a sum of money can be 100 rupees can be 1000 rupees can be 10000 rupees and if you can see that money go away and it wouldn't really impact your life in a very drastic way i think that is then still a very calculative risky decision now if you're putting in money that you know is probably meant for something else and it's probably useful for something else that is more important than investing and and stuff like that i think then it's the wrong way to go about it um i think the idea is to understand where the risk limit is and uh, invest accordingly um at least that's my personal opinion and how i look at things is that um you got to understand what's your uh, risk parameter and then you know uh, look at that risk and see how much can i invest and then make peace with the worst outcome and then i think you're good to go because then the upsides you, nobody has to teach you how to deal with that but at least the downside of it um it won't really impact you because you've already thought about it you already prepared for it interesting like well like what's 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 the way to create luck in the stock market space like is uh, there is there a way to do it like how we do it and probably like do it in life like how we sort of keep our eggs in multiple <laughs> baskets so, so right, let's see right. no diversify absolutely no no diversify i think that's one way about it uh, but i think the question you asked me was how do you how do you get lucky with the markets right i don't think 
there's a silver silver bullet there. I don't yeah. think there's any answer to that question. Absolutely not. Um, unless you uh, somehow can get um, hold of information that nobody else has, um, I don't think it's possible. And I recently read a Reddit thread on on this, and I'll probably share it with you after this call about how. Um, this one person is ranting about how everything is priced in, right? I think mm-hmm. um, when you look at a stock and you're thinking, you know, maybe the next quarter sales are not priced in, I think you're wrong because it's already priced in by investors who are ahead of you are like actually doing this day in and day out. Uh, it kind of made sense to me. And uh, I think in the stock markets and the investing, at least in equities and say futures and options and derivatives, it's all about knowing um, information. And I think that itself is the answer there is that if you have information somehow get hold of information you can get lucky but if you can't then diversification is one way to mitigate risk i think diversification is not the way to get lucky i think it's just protects you on the downside where um if one basket uh, falls i think you still have nine standing so mm-hmm. that way at least some of your capital is preserved uh, rather than growing but uh, but yeah i think that preservation goes a long way too Achha, like what are few, what are a few shortcomings in the Indian stock market space setup? Like, like, um, I would say, like what's you know, going wrong? Yeah, what's going wrong? That's a that's a good question. You know, I haven't really given a thought to it. But um, maybe in the fintech space, I think um, there can be more um, that should be allowed and experimented on um, because um, with technology with some of these other things that's upcoming i think um, we as at least as india should be open to innovating and open to uh, trying a few things and that's been happening um, mm-hmm. i mean over the past year or so i think there have been sandboxes uh, innovation sandbox etc regulatory sandboxes it's been happening now but um, what was going wrong was that that will to um, at least experiment on some of these things so it's, now that it's happening i don't really have any complaints i think uh, at least as i said um india is very investor friendly we are very regulated market and that kind of helps as much as we'd like to um or at least some people would like to uh, say complain about it i think it helps protect retail investors in india which is a good thing uh, in the long run so um no no real complaints as such and uh, i'll probably think about it a little bit and let you know in case i i find something <laughs> what do you think about defi oh uh, decentralized finance so you know it's a fancy way of putting uh, what an llc is um, so uh-huh. llc is basically a very legal structure of forming a company of sorts and mm-hmm. you know defi uh, is a fancy new term right? people are throwing it around now um, you know we've been speaking about it internally uh, and discussing and debating about how defi works and for us at least from my personal opinion uh, there's a lot of things or at least a solution in looking looking for a problem right eventually um what can happen right now with the defi can happen in a legal construct as well but um there've been a lot of blogs around there's a lot of webinars a lot of podcasts around how defi is the answer to a lot of problems we've been facing um but you know we'll only see over a period of time how this plays out uh, i think at least from my perspective it's just a company structure that is um run on a blockchain and there are smart contracts for decision making so how is that different from current structures is that it takes away uh, the decision making power from certain set of people and gives it to a larger set of people um does that really work in all circumstances how can that be enforced um what will be the interface be for the physical medium uh, if things go wrong who's going to take care of it uh, what happens when uh, when certain um, say a large section of the people who have power there are 
are trying to lobby against the the rest of the people so some of those problems you know uh, will always remain and i think um, there's a lot of work to be done there uh, but at least from my perspective it's just a fancy new way of uh, saying what an llc does <laughs> wow that that's yeah. really interesting I, i'll probably listen to that like twice or thrice again cuz I need to know because, <laughs> yeah. like, I, I, I've been on. Like, I'm on Twitter since like two years now, and DeFi. I'm hearing this a lot. Like now, it's, exactly. it's almost like a trend. So, yeah, no. Basically, what what's happening there is, uh, say, you know, decentralized finance is basically taking power away from a centralized authority, right? So, mm-hmm. say you're investing in a company, uh, the money is now being handled by a set of people in the company. You now, it can be the board, it can be the management, etc. But what's happening in DeFi is that. um you have a set of people say 100 people come together and they mm-hmm. pull in money and they set up a defi now uh, everybody gets to vote everybody gets to make the decisions now everybody has got incentive to make the right decision uh, essentially it's just built on a blockchain and what happens is when everybody comes together to make a decision um inputs are taken and those inputs go into uh, a validation engine which says you know if 50% of 51% of people have voted for this then this happens if not then this so that's a smart contract so what a smart contract is is just a digital way of saying um or a yes or no loop where you know, certain conditions are met this happens if not the other thing happens so nobody's controlling these decisions so tomorrow nobody can alter the outcomes of these decisions is what i was saying so in defi i think that's the only abstract way of defining it uh, again there, there are various physical use cases of this and there are use cases obviously um, that have come up that's why it's a buzzword um but in the larger context in terms of how this is going to grow and and play out in the indian context and lot of other uh, contexts around products and businesses we yet to see about that but um it's quite cool about you know how quickly some of these things have grown right i think people are learning about it and there's still a long way to go so uh, i'm probably learning as well about it so uh, i'm not sure if i've, I've explained it in the right sense if uh, Uh, I'll probably go back and read about uh, it as well. <laughs> Interesting. Well, let's just jump back to stock market. So, what are like a few stock market myths that you would like to bust? Mm, again, I think I, I mentioned a few earlier as well. One of the huh. thing is that you know, making money is not easy in stock market. So, don't believe anybody who's claiming that you know you can grow your capital 10x, 15x, or 5x or whatever it is. I think it's hard work to grow your money in the capital or in the capital market space. So that's one. Um, other thing is um, copying somebody who's a huge trader or is a profit-making trader will help you make profits as well. I think that's one of the things that's that's wrong too because uh, the risk appetite for different people is different, and hence what works for somebody else might not work for you. um and the third thing is um you know leverage right i think people kind of uh, or at least there's wrong messaging out there which says you know if you uh, borrow money and invest in the stock markets you've got greater chance of winning more money or or at least making more money because you're investing more money uh, that you borrowed but i think um leverage is is one of the wrong things that you can do in the stock markets i think uh, the capital that you invest should be the capital that you're ready to lose and at least from a very minimal risk taking perspective um i think those are the three things that i can now probably mention at this point time interesting all right let's let's come back to train matter okay so uh, sure, yeah. like let's start from the beginning like what is rain matter yeah. what's happening there so rain matter is um, it's an investment arm of zerodha um basically in 2016 when we built our kite application 
we uh, Kailash kind of had this uh, vision and and foresight to build it using APIs. So basically, what he was thinking was, you know, somebody else trying to do something like this around capital market should be able to come build on top of us, and that kind of started uh, Rain Matter. And Nitin and Kailash met Smallkey's team a few days after this conversation about APIs and Kite application, etc. And you see where Smallkey is today. And mm-hmm. um, since that's the journey of Rain Matter, it started with an idea. um now it's um an investment arm of zeroda where we try to support and fund capital markets based startups and founders we have also ventured into climate now through rain matter foundation um and also we are looking at uh, health and fitness and uh, education as a as a subject as well uh, but essentially what we're trying to do is deepen capital market space in india so if anybody uh, who's trying to help people manage money better um i think we are more than happy to help them out um, and look at what are the challenges that we can solve together Mm, but from um, from a rain matter perspective as to why um, it's become a, a very nice investment arm is because of trust right? i think zeroda has built trust with people over a period of time and rain matter being an arm of zeroda i think garners that same trust with uh, startups and founders and i've been helping a lot of founders and startups over a period of time so um we are a very light touch um vc model where um, we just want to be around cool founders or trying to do some cool things around capital markets interesting how different is this from a traditional vc so you know the time scales for us in terms of decision making is very 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 short because there is not really a lot of hierarchy in in decision making um that's one um the second thing is you know very very light touch in terms of operation so very non intrusive um we don't really um have a lot of demands of of startups i think the idea is to grow these startups and make sure that they are surviving and um we can probably help in any way possible but uh, i think in terms of a conventional vc where there's a lot of exit modeling uh, there's a lot of um, operational control there's a lot of uh, conversations going around how strategically um, you need to plan exits etc but for us i think at rain matter we are very patient capital uh, same across the matter foundation and rain matter climate as well is that we are very patient capital and for us i think the idea is to invest in startups and make sure that they're they are delivering value for their clients and uh, that's the whole idea there so very different from traditional vc funds like if i'm not wrong is this like an incubator type situation where like it would help it is uh, yeah it is but it's it's not really a very conventional incubator right so when somebody says an incubator or an accelerator i think people think about um this office official setup where there are a lot of teams uh, who come with applications apply and then go through a process they get allocated seed capital and then they do bunch of stuff so uh, for us i think it's it's an incubator from a sense that you know there's always opportunity to work out problems there's always opportunity to get advice on legal regulatory structures etc so yeah obviously you know we give office spaces to some of our startups who are trying to work in bangalore um and all that setup is there uh, but it's again very different from an incubator because we don't really have a lot of things that a conventional incubator does uh, which is have certain rights on to the next round have um a few other monetary conditions tied into contracts etc so none of that is what we do um we are very light touch model colors is an incubator because uh, essentially there's a lot of help that we give capital market related startups because um nitin sits on a lot of these regulatory committees and there's always uh, insights and intelligence that um, or at least knowledge and ideas that we can share with some of these startups that kind of helps these startups go along interesting what's happening in the climate side of things so in in india it's quite nascent right i mean just starting now i think a lot of 
uh, investors are looking at climate in India and saying, you know, where are the profit making avenues available? But um, obviously, uh, it's a huge problem. Um, mm-hmm. I think the planet is warming up faster than ever. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, details out there and there's a lot of reports out there, a uh, lot of conflicting ideas too. Um, but I think from a climate perspective, India is very well positioned, right? I think um, there's a lot of work going on in the solar space. There's a lot of work going on in the wind energy space, a lot of work going on in the nuclear energy space. With the EV space as well, I think, you know, there's a lot of attraction too. Um, and over a period of time, we'll see how this develops. But it's very nascent in India right now. And a lot of teams and startups working or at least starting to work on some of these solutions. Um, you should definitely check out some of our portfolio companies uh, at Train Matter Climate. Uh, there as well, I think we are trying to support innovative founders, trying to do some cool things. Um, and again, nothing around business model, nothing around revenue and, and stuff like that. I think the ideas are more scalable ideas are more sustainable over a period of time so that they can actually move needles um, towards certain ambitions. So maybe it can be waste management, can be plastics, can be water, um, can be all tiny parts of um, climate uh, puzzle, right? I think people kind of misconstrue climate to be just solutions about carbon, just solutions about reducing carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide or greenhouse gases. But it's also about livelihoods. It's also about making sure people have that empowerment to to fight some of these problems themselves. Right. So I think that's what we're trying to do at the foundation is that make sure we look at this from a multi-pronged approach and try to solve it. Um, again, there's a lot happening in India um, and there are a lot of reports and blogs out there, so I'm not going to get into it. But uh, a lot of teams doing a lot of good stuff and a lot of our teams also uh, at least at the Rain Matter Foundation, the teams we funded and the teams we've granted money who are NGOs and NPOs are doing a lot of great stuff on the ground. Interesting. Like, why is there so much conflict in research about global warming? Like, why does that exist? Because oh, when I was trying to just yeah. read about it, like, very, <laughs> yeah. this, this insane. I'm not sure about the word. I think it's, like, very conflicting. Why, why does correct, that exist? Correct. You know, from my limited research and from whatever I've read so far, it's just lobbying, right? I think, you know, there's a, there's a huge set of business. There's a lot of businesses out there who are, benefiting from mm-hmm. climate intensive practices and processes right you know oil and gas companies a um, lot of other um, say climate intensive companies are having a lot of huge carbon footprint like airlines and transport and whatnot now these there, there's a lot of lobbying from these people to make sure they survive and i think the whole idea behind a lot of conflicting ideas is this is that a lot of people trying to put out data and and things out there um which is quite opposite to what's happening on the ground. Um, again, I don't think anybody can refute climate change as a problem, right? I think it's mm-hmm. quite evident with uh, the weather, with what are we seeing with climate right now, with seeing um, with uh, everything around us. I mean, all the kind of patterns that we see is getting hotter and hotter through the year as well. So I think the data is there to support um, all the evidence um, that climate change is here. And it's happening now, right? I mean, it's not a future event. It's happening now. We're probably midway through it, and there's only a little bit of time left for us to actually um, do something about this. Uh, not sure if that'll help, but at least we can try. Uh, but yeah, I think you know the answer to the question around why there's conflicting ideas is just the set of people who are trying to make sure they're relevant, and I think uh, that's that's the reason. Uh, but you know, I'm happy if anybody else knows any other answers that that I can uh, probably uh, learn more about. Yeah, interesting. So, like, if you if you have noticed, like, most of the effort that is taken to sort of change the climate, like, like, not talking about companies, like, just just people, 
it's mostly about sense over sensationalizing the problem that exists so do you think that really helps uh, and how how do we actually go about finding solutions to global warming like because it's, uh-huh. it's a very multi-layered problem right like, we can't just be like let's yeah, yeah, like, so what's the way to do it do you think, do you think like even over sensationalize okay this word is tough <laughs> over sensationalizing helps like at least for the <laughs> you know in terms of messaging uh, i think i'm not sure you know i don't mm-hmm. i don't really have um any kind of insight into does it help or does it not but i think what we can do to to help uh, global warming as as a problem is that we need to educate more and more people right and when i say educate more and more people i mean to say um, message it in the right way that you know the people everywhere kind of are aware about what's happening so that everybody can contribute to this um obviously i think there are a lot of ways to do this and um, i'm not sure which is the right way but i think we need to sensitize people to this issue i think all the people who are educated all the people who go to universities working in companies um stuff like that everybody knows about climate change because it would have come up in a conversation somewhere somebody would have mentioned it or they would have read something in a in a newspaper or on a blog etc but there are a lot of people who you know are not probably exposed to that environment and i think it's our duty and our job to make sure that it's communicated to those people so that they can play an effort and they can play a part in this too but the answer to what can help solve climate change i think or global warming it's going to be all of us right i think there's nobody else who's going to come and save us and you know i go i, I was talking to somebody the other day about the carl sagan video where he's talking about um earth from a different vantage point when the voyager spacecraft kind of turned back and look at earth and and in the sunbeam earth is just a speck right and i think that kind of puts everything in perspective is that nobody's coming to save us at this point in time and you know as much as we'd like to think there are other planets out there to which humans can migrate to i think obviously not going it's not going to happen at any time soon at least given where we are right now so it's in our best interest to educate as many people as we possibly can make sure that we invest um, a lot of ideas we invest in a lot of projects that make us climate resilient at least mm-hmm. try to safeguard some of our interests and then go from there uh, but we need to build that foundation and without having everybody on board it's very difficult so i think that's what we're doing at the foundation as well is that um at least at rain matter foundation we try to speak to people make sure everybody is sensitive to these ideas and and the problem that's out there uh, that goes a long way too and uh, again as you said it's a multi-pronged problem not really a silver bullet out there that can solve this you can't really turn on a switch and solve the problem but i think if all of us have become responsible over a period of time i think the problem can significantly reduce in scale and it might be treatable at a period interesting all right so uh yeah, yeah. we're almost at the end of the conversation right so before yeah, like yeah. We, we bid goodbye uh i would like see uh, the audience is like 18 to 25 like, that's the major age group like for the most part what right. do you, what would you like to yeah. tell tell those guys like probably like three pieces of advice if i go uh why the generic <laughs> like what would you like to say right. um i think you know you got to whatever you're doing i think you got to put your heart and soul into it that's one thing i think you know very important is that um there are a lot of times in life where you're probably not doing uh, what you want to do um maybe you're studying a subject maybe you're in university maybe you're doing a job that that you don't really like but uh, i think you got to put your heart and soul into whatever you're doing because uh, you got to do well in that before you take up other responsibilities so that's one thing is that uh, whatever you're doing at this point in time i think you got to do it well 
um or um, at least find something else that you can do really well and, and go chase that so that's one second thing is i think always learn into personal skills always talk to people always look out for new experiences kind of um helps broaden your uh, perspectives helps you understand more people helps you understand more context help you understand more situations it'll help you and it'll take you a long way in life to at least tackle some of the problems that um that generally come um and the third thing is you know um keep um, or at least network right i mean um, when i say network i mean to say um do a lot of conscious connecting the dots where if you're going somewhere or have an ambition then make sure you're working towards it um i think without that i think rest of it um is quite useless so got to put in that work every single day um and i think that's something that i tell myself every single day as well so uh, those are some of the things again i'm not one for advice because um i'm yeah quite young as well but um again if i have to say three things that has helped me over a period of time it's been that is to um do whatever you're doing at this point in time do it really well uh, and you know be very mindful of other people and also network and uh, learn from other people's experience all right what are what are the three mistakes you made in the past 5 years which you don't want others to make like the people listening uh, <laughs> yeah um instinctive decisions um i think that's one uh, i mm-hmm. i've i've done it very often uh, from 2014 to 2017 i guess uh, i've been you know erratic decisions just based on instincts and gut feeling i think uh, i know it works for some people but for me it's not really worked out well uh, so i think uh, just be very patient and very calculative with some of the decisions you make which have a um, lot of extended ramifications right so that's one um other mistakes hmm can't really think of any uh, at this point in time but uh, oh you know uh, mm-hmm. not spending enough time on on doing something that you like right so there are situations in life where um you probably are busy doing a lot of things um and you don't find time to do things that you like i think that's one of the mistakes that you should never do always find time to do things that you like so that always get a break from uh, doing other things uh, which you probably don't like so that's one thing um but yeah i mean i think each one for himself right i think a lot of different ways to uh, tackle problems and and go through life i think the important thing is to be respectful to people and and make sure that um you're not um being very outlandish with some of the decisions you take so uh, apart from that i think everything's going to be great as long as you put uh, work into it <laughs> awesome all right thank you so much for doing this dinesh hey no no thanks again for having me asha very nice talking to you all right just i'm, I'm...